Thank you. Good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you for the uh, post-NCAA early rising that everybody did this morning. Uh, I couldn't be uh, more pleased to be here, actually, after Paul's long pursuit, and, and, I'm, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm especially grateful to be here on his uh, named lectureship. Uh, you know, I, uh, I could say a lot of things, I could repeat all the accomplishments and all the professional things, which actually was what first interested me in many of the areas that I focused on in my career, uh, because Dr. Dworkin's name was well known to all of us in the field. But to be honest with you, uh, I prefer to uh, read David Brooks's uh, recent editorial about um, the difference between uh, achievement traits and eulogy traits. and. Brooks writes, uh, you know, how important it is in life and how our society celebrates all the achievements and awards and named lectureships and everything else that we do in life. But the thing about Dr. Dworkin, and, and I'll say Paul in particular, and his lovely wife Sheila, who's hosted me as well and has been so gracious these last uh, two days, is that he also has all the things we want people to say at our eulogy. Kind, compassionate, family-oriented, uh, caring for children, and uh, really a role model for all of us. And so I, I hope you take that with you if you take away nothing else that I say today. It's uh, you are truly blessed in Hartford to have had him here in your midst. Okay, so today uh, I want to challenge you, and I want to start by saying that um, I was raised in a pediatric tradition, so I can say this, but uh, pediatrics, in my opinion, is a thing of the past. And uh, I'm going to say, because we are fixated on our office-based practice of medical care. And I do not believe we can survive that route going forward. And I could start that by saying, what do we really do in pediatrics? What have we accomplished? What measurable successes do we have? And I would turn to the trainees and say, what did you do in the last week that can be measured in the population actually show better child outcomes. Now, I, I know each of us has individual life-saving stories that really made a difference to an individual family. But when we really look at the quality of life in the communities in which we live and whether children are better off now than they were before we built the last new hospital or the last new building, I think we have to ask a couple questions. And so I'm going to raise a couple questions. Why are we here? Is it healthcare or health? Housing and health, I want to talk briefly about past, present, and future of that, and I want to talk about creating community in Columbus, Ohio. So I, the marketing department asked me to put this slide up and to brag a little bit about Children's <laughs> Hospital, you know? And I said, okay, you know, yes, okay, so now it's the biggest. Great, you know, it's the biggest. Uh, yes, we have a lot of research. We're doing zero hero, safety magnet status, all these things, largest NICU. But here's the problem. In the middle of the, one of the richest hospitals in the United States for children, in fact, maybe the richest, the second richest, I don't know, we have these areas in red called least opportunity indices. We have neighborhoods where we have an incredibly high rate of black infant mortality, a very high rate of suicide very high rate of gun deaths due to children. 
In fact, if you look at some of Raj Chetty's work, which I hope you all have read for Hartford's purposes, because your maps in Hartford are on atlasopportunity.org, this map is the relative income of various neighborhoods, children that grew up in those neighborhoods when they're adults, 30 years later. And basically what you'll see is, I don't know if I can make this work, but here in Franklinton, it's 19,000. In Grandview Heights, it's 50. And in Upper Arlington, it's $73,000 per year. Those differences are less than five miles apart. And in fact, between Upper Arlington and Franklinton, the average life expectancy difference is 25 years. So we have a whole generation life expectancy difference separated by less than three miles. That has nothing to do with biology. That has nothing to do with access to health care. That is our society's value on those communities. So it doesn't matter how many hospitals we build. It doesn't matter that we have one of the biggest hospitals in the United States. And in fact, if you look at the number of children that have had well child care within two miles of the largest children's hospital in the United States, in Columbus, Ohio, 40% of the kids that live within two miles have not had well child care in the past two years. So we have a problem with how we're delivering medical care. And it's because we're trying to produce medical care, not health for children. And so we are great at producing medical care in this country. We do not produce health for children. And that is why our numbers rank so low. You all know the international comparisons. I'm not going to spend time on that. So unfortunately, the social determinants of health these are the graphs that put out by, you've seen this from the World Health Organization, the Canadian Medical Association put out a graph like this, a figure like this. Clinical care, on average, accounts for you know, somewhere between 18 and 20%, depending on who you believe, of the measurable differences in population health outcomes across communities. Social and economic factors account for the majority, with health behaviors largely influenced by the social and economic factors accounting for the rest. And so what do we do about that? Well, housing is one of the biggest social determinants, and I want to focus on that today, but I'd be delighted to talk questions about what else we're doing in employment and other areas as well. But today, I want to focus on past, present, and future. And I'm not going to spend time on this because you had Dr. Megan Sandell here a while back, and she's uh, a true expert on housing. So houses hurt, and we know in the past, Everybody said, oh, we're familiar with how houses hurt, and this is why people get involved in weatherization or mold removal and get involved in asbestos uh, and, and lead abatement. And so this is some of the work that you've read about from Rob Kahn in Cincinnati recently, where they've gone from their asthma clinic of high users and gone out into and pursued landlords in the community who have a high rate of mold-infested uh, apartments who are slumlords and pursued them in the courts and it's had great effect on their population. So that's one creative way to think about past research and past use of uh, how house, housing and health research works. 25% of the 110 million units of housing in the United States are considered unhealthy or inadequate in, in researches. So almost every community, if you look at all the total number of housing units, we have 25% that are now unhealthy or inadequate. 
And we've done a couple uh, studies on this. We used the survey of income and program participation. And basically that is a national representative household survey. Sorry about this, I can't get rid of this thing. I don't know how to make it stop doing that. But basically we surveyed 53,000 uh, households. There's a cross-sectional secondary, uh, uh, cross secondary analysis of 13,000 to look at how parents, healthy parents say their housing is and their kids are. And in repeated analysis, parents report much greater risk of poor health status if they live in a house that has exposed pipes and, and, and holes in the walls, cracks in the ceilings, infestation with rats or mice, and uh, other unsafe neighborhoods. And this is replicated if you look at high medical utilization, or you look at hospitalization, parents are much more likely to report these things when they live in this inadequate or insufficient housing. And these are other ways that houses uh, hurts children. And I'm not going to go through these because this is the old literature. But we also know that housing affects parents. And this is what you know, Hartford is known for, is focus on parenting and young families at risk. But it doesn't matter how much we train parents to be great parents if they're depressed, anxious, if they have to work two jobs to try to stay in housing, if they're cost burdened by having more than 30% of their income going to rent and other things, and if they have decreased social connections because they live in the kind of housing that places people at high risk and makes people stay inside. So we can do all the training and all the, all the parent interventions and all the CBT we want, but unless we provide a healthy community, the evidence suggests that we're not going to make very much difference. But I want to talk about mainly the future, and in the future, I want to talk about where we're going to go with our research and where we're going to go with housing because I think that's what uh, we're really about and that's where if we want to produce health instead of health care what we should think about and there's three ways in which housing will become associated with health in the future first we're going to have healthier homes and we can talk about how that's going to happen briefly secondly I want to talk about health care in the home very uh, briefly and lastly, I want to talk about building community, and that's where I want to spend the most time. Um, and what do I mean by these three things? It's things you would expect. Uh, first of all, you know, uh, abatement of lead and cleaning up of houses that are in disrepair. And the United States have a, has a crumbling infrastructure. We've spent inadequately, but there's a lot of roles for healthcare facilities now. Healthcare is 21%, or soon to be 21% of our uh, gross domestic product right now. It's the largest part of our economy. It's the largest sector of our economy. And as dollars, and we could debate this, I'm gonna say this contentiously, more healthcare dollars to healthcare systems is less dollars for education and social services. So I'm not saying we should wholesale give back all the dollars or anything like that, but can we spend dollars more effectively for health outcomes in other sectors? And this is one sector where we know that we can get great advance, especially in getting rid of lead in our economy and lead in our system, uh, as long, along with improving other health aspects. Eventually, though, we'd stop designing housing to be bad for health and start designing it to be good for health. And we already know in hospital design, for example, that bright lights, open environments, plants and noises, positive nature uh, exposure, actually improves healing time in hospitals. 
Well, now we know that that's actually healthy for families in their homes as well. So the introduction of green space in communities, the introduction of small amounts of green plants and other opportunities, the ability for children to spend time in the environment is all associated with better mental health. And the more time linearly is spent in the outdoors is associated with greater mental health long-term in several recent studies that have come out. So how we design our housing, how we design our, our homes of the future is really gonna matter, no matter how big they are, is really going to matter for children and families. So are we going to uh, return to the visit in days of uh, home visits with the doctors? And, and do I think they're gonna be physicians? No, I don't think that's gonna happen because uh, we can't afford that as a society. But do I think we'll have home visitors in healthcare? Absolutely. We're already seeing great models of that coming out of San Antonio and the Family Medicine Department and other places where home visiting is being offered to some families for particular conditions and they are, there's a very anxious acceptance of that for many families. Now some families don't want a home visitor unless it's a home visitor that they trust. And so there has to be relationship building and trust building, but relationships and trust are frankly the core of any good care. And so if we're not willing to take the time to do that, then we shouldn't expect any type of care to really work. So um, I think we're gonna have a lot more home in the health, uh, homes and healthcare together. Of course, this is technology based and um, Ohio has some of the most regressive telemedicine laws in the country. And we're anxiously trying to get past those things, but um, basically there are several good studies now, and I like the ones out of Rochester and School Health, for example, that show marked improvements in school attendance with kids that get school health care and keep kids in their seats, because schools get paid that way. And so in many states, schools get paid by the number of kids whose butts are in seats. And if you can keep children in school, they're much more likely to learn in the academic exposure. So chronic absenteeism is increasingly a problem in many, many parts of the country, certainly in Columbus, Ohio. So we are going to school-based telemedicine and school-based visits to try to keep children in school, and we're already having some positive outcomes from school attendance. So that's something I anticipate will be much more common. But I think we're gonna end up also with home visits, telehealth, and we're especially seeing that with technology-dependent children, our, our G-tube, uh, nurses are finding some really good uh, positive experiences with that. This is uh, something that is going to be increasingly common whether or not the healthcare system accepts it. It's what families want. And so monitoring grandma in her home with digital tools that are passive where grandma doesn't need to be involved in the actual technology herself, but we're going to start using this in pediatrics as well. And so this is something off the, kit, off the shelf right now you can buy from Corvo, but there are five or six other competing manufacturers who have on-the-shelf products that range from $200 to $500 to $800. And these products are sensors that you put in around the home to tell you when somebody's fallen, when somebody's inactive for two or three days in a row, when somebody stopped going to church or to the movies or to whatever. And we now also have the similar things for cell phones. So David Moore at Northwestern has put a cell phone tool kit together and it monitors whether adolescents who are suicidal have stopped making phone calls to their friends, have stopped getting on certain apps for social media, or have started saying things on those that are concerning, such as use of the word, I'm afraid, I'm scared, or I might hurt myself. So 
Technology is not always the greatest thing for adolescents or children or families, but does have a purpose and a value if we learn how to process the analytics. Are people that we're concerned about taking their medications at home? Are they following up on care? Are they getting out and being active in the community? Are they really buying the groceries that we asked you know, them to talk about or going to the same right places? So again, with proper consents, with proper education, that's, that can be important. I haven't gotten used to these little buttons yet down here, so. For me though, the most important thing that we've left out of all this is community. So the American healthcare system has focused on the patient as the unit of intervention without considering that for children and adolescents, how environmentally contextually dependent they are. And we know that some of the most important predictors of child and adolescent success is the community they come from. And so what happens in communities that go at risk, even among poor communities that are equally poor, what's the difference between some that have very high rates of suicide, infant mortality, other problems, homicides, gang activity, and crime, and others that are equally poor but don't have those things. And there, there's a neighborhood supervision and community support effect, social cohesion that occurs in neighborhoods. And as a healthcare system, we've totally ignored that for all these years. And building community is an essential element of that. And so we believe that it's not relevant just to intervene on the individual family or patient because that's what further isolates many families and patients when we intervene just with those folks. Instead, it's the building of community and support and social activity that really keeps people in their community and successful. So how does that work? Well, one of the ways it works, and this came again with leadership from the uh, geriatric community, but now is actually emerging for many people going to college or post-college, is shared social equity or shared equity in living arrangements where people rent, own a bedroom or own part of a place or even rent part of a place but have shared common space. And so Toronto has is, is specialized in some of this and other cities like Vancouver where they have very high density and lots of high cost uh, living arrangements. But there are bedrooms occupied by various people and they may even have a private bathroom but then the kitchen and common space is shared and people actually build community. It's dormitory style living for the millennials and it is an efficient way to use resources and actually helps build community and people in this kind of environment can stay in the community longer and seem to be happier about it. That doesn't work for everybody. So what happens in some places where people don't want to have a shared wall and some people don't want to, or in a rural area where you don't have large buildings, some people are building micro homes in micro villages. And there are several interesting experiments about this, uh, two in Alabama, one in Montana, a couple starting in uh, New York, upstate New York. And in these micro homes, people have a very small footprint of their own, but they have shared green space, shared gardens, and shared social services where we can efficiently deliver, we can go into a rural community and deliver bus transportation, childcare, social work visits, parenting training, all in a confined space where people get lots of the services in a very short way. And this is turning out to be a very effective tool, especially for high-risk young male populations who don't want to share a wall and pound on it with somebody next door, or who are, have not lived well in large group settings but have a little space of their own and can be outside a lot. 
So again, micro villages are not likely to work for everybody, but they have a role and as healthcare systems, they're an affordable way to get involved in housing solutions. That's not what we decided to do in Columbus, Ohio though, and right next to uh, the Children's Hospital, we have a neighborhood that we call the Healthy Neighborhood Healthy Family Zone, which is really the neighborhood's name is Southern Orchards. And Southern Orchards is a population of about 2,000 people with about 612 children who are three quarters African American. Um, only 23% of the people own or uh, live in an owner-occupied home. And the vast majority of families are above the poverty line, but below the 200% of poverty. So it's a very much a working poor area. And Columbus uh, had uh, one of the highest crime rates right next to the hospital of, of anywhere in Ohio. So um, this was a, so I'm throwing things around, sorry about that. <laughs> I get really excited about this part, can you tell? <laughs> anyway, this was our article in pediatrics describing the phases, but I wanna tell you how we got involved in housing in a more formal fashion and why we did. And it's because we don't think it's important just to address the individual children and families, but actually the whole neighborhood phenomenon because there's a ripple effect that goes across the community that touches people outside of the homes you're intervening in. So social and economic factors we already talked about, but what are the three steps? Well, first we built what we thought are high quality clinical services in all our high risk neighborhoods. So yes, did we add medical services for access? Of course, there were people and children not being taken care of by the system, and they weren't coming to this giant, beautiful glass and steel tower we built for some reason. And it turns out it's really hard to go on three buses to a great big glass and steel tower that's overwhelming and looks far away, and even though it's close, and you need to build things in the neighborhood that are approachable. So secondly, we connected clinical care with social supports. We began screening for social risk factors uh, in the clinics and saying, are you hungry? Do you know where you're gonna sleep tonight? Do you have a place or are you worried about violence in your home? And get, setting up referrals within our clinics that had on the ground social services in the neighborhoods. And yes, that's been helpful. But that didn't actually prevent those things from happening in the first place. And so the last is addressing the social determinants of health at a higher level, more upstream. And we really had to do this in a phased way because you can't go into a neighborhood and just spread the largesse of, of housing grants uh, because that doesn't work. And so what we did was we started with neighborhoods very near the school and we worked outward from the school. And we said, you have to at least clean up somewhere between 30 and 50% of all the houses on a block to make sure there's no drug activity and squatting on that street. So we would go in and provide stabilization grants to homeowners to keep the homeowners that are already there in place. Then you add build activities where you are rebuilding or rehabbing or completely starting from scratch. Then workforce activities and finally affordable rentals to keep the properties affordable. So how does that look? Well, Southern Orchards neighborhood has a certain style of architecture, but we gave all exterior grants do shingles and, how and roofing, safety windows and also lights, exterior lighting, to homeowners who had existing grants. And those grants average between twelve dollars and $15,000. And we supervised the contractors uh, at the hospital and provided a list of certified contractors that could do the work. 
And a lot of times uh, the hospital oversaw the project development with the owners in tow, but the owners were only too happy for this to keep them in their, in their homes. Then we've uh, started our full gut rehabs and our builds on vacant lots. And the city sells us land property at a discount from the land bank, puts some of the properties in a land trust, which we can talk about if we have time. And so far we're at 300 residential builds or transitions and you do three to four on each block and you move out from that block and we are growing uh, at two to four blocks a year and an outward circle. And we're about to start our second neighborhood called Linden. The next idea is to actually go after what's called LIHTC deals or low income housing tax credit deals. And development companies make a lot of money, no surprise. They need tax credits to get rid of some of that uh, income tax burden. And so they want to build low income housing tax credit deals, but they're very competitive. So when a hospital comes along and says, oh, we'll partner with you as a land developer, they love that because the state's going to automatically practically give them the grant. So uh, now, but we have to insist that the activity is worthwhile. So this is an example called the Residence at Career Gateway. Our hospital has 600 jobs posted right now that are unfilled. And many of them are technical jobs like respiratory tech or, uh, you know, laceration tech or, uh, you know, phlebotomist. And those jobs can be trained with a certificate program. And so working with the community college and working with Goodwill Industries, we provide training in a job site on site where the residents live four blocks from the hospital. So they can walk to work if they, once they do their training, get their certificate program, and then come and get a job and stay in their residences after they've had their training. So it serves a hospital need as an employer. It cleans up the neighborhood, provides affordable living for people who are coming in at entry-level jobs, and it also offers workforce development. And this week we were able to announce that we've gone to a uh, livable wage at $15 an hour for all employees. So the, oh, thanks. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, if we're going to say we care about social determinants, our own employees make up a lot of the people in the neighborhood. And we really have to understand they have young children who are in childcare and have transportation issues. So affordable uh, income and, and affordable living nearby is important. And this is where we're headed now, right now. This is the first implementation of what's called a capital stack. And I, this was my uh, second year in medical school. I slept through this class, so I didn't learn about capital stacks. But basically, um, we received roughly $1,500 of subordinate debt. The mayor, along with Columbus Foundation, the hospital, and some uh, private donor, put together a $5 million equity grant. So $5 million worth of equity, and the local banks, Affordable Housing Trust, and Ohio Capital Finance Corporation, what's called a CDFI that gets treasury dollars, now have leveraged debt. They have stacked their debt on top of that for a total of $20 million to build 170 more affordable rental units on the south side of Columbus that are scattered site affordable rentals. So the idea is once the hospital was in as a $1 million donor, $20 million got piled on top of that to build 170 units. And then at the end of 10 years, 
when some of this debt comes due, we will resell 10% of it, pay off the rest, the debt that's owed, and refinance the next wave with that money. So staying ahead of the curve and refinancing is something that as physicians, we're not trained to learn. You know, we don't have this background, we don't have this training, but the finance people know how to do this. And when the hospital walks in the room as either a guarantor of the loans or as the lead financier, there's a sudden awareness and excitement that the hospital's involved so we know the project's gonna get done. So this is the kind of political capital. And in our last stack, which we are, I hope we'll have done by this summer, the hospital's provided zero dollars down for the $20 million, the mayor and all the other partners in United Way and others are putting up the, the grant at the bottom. The banks are gonna guarantee the loans or put the loans in and the hospital is gonna guarantee the loan. It's gonna say, you will not lose if you do this for the first $2 million, we will take the loss. So the hospital's only on the hook if the project fails. So zero dollars down, but we organize the, the money, we come in with the political capital, we get the partners involved. And that way, we're using political capital, but not financial capital to do this. That's as much as I'm gonna say about banking, sorry. I had to do it. But you can't, of course, build the houses if you don't also provide jobs. And there are a need for skilled workers throughout Columbus. And so Fannie Mae uh, gave us an award to do what's called a Sustainable Community Workforce Initiative. Uh, we are partnering with a community faith-based organization called Community Development for All People to recruit a large number of people from the South Side neighborhood. Goodwill Industries and Columbus uh, Community College is, is coming in and training people, and then we are providing the hiring and coordination for a project. So people coming into our affordable rentals can now also get job trained at our career development site. And our latest grant or hopefully project is a low-income housing tax credit deal to provide childcare in a building right next to our training site. So they have childcare while they're in job training. So families need comprehensive services and we've underinvested in these communities for so long. There are tools and techniques out there that hospitals can employ by engaging the right people in the community. So this is how many dollars that are currently away? We've finished $41 million of construction, 22 million more under, underway, and 20 million more in negotiations. Uh, these numbers sound large, but it's still, you know, Columbus has a 50,000 unit shortage of housing, affordable housing right now. We are gonna be adding 1,000 to that on the south side. It's a huge investment, it's a great idea, and it's important, but it's not enough. We, every hospital has to get more involved. This is the vacancy rate in our neighborhood versus the other neighborhoods around us and what's happened over time. And you could just see that the vacancy rate in Columbus, when it was in 2009, it was here, it was considered the highest vacancy rate in central Ohio and it was the site of a lot of the drug and gang activity for the city. This is the uh, perceptions of the neighbors. So we've been surveying the neighbors for the last three years and increasingly they are more than satisfied about being a member of the neighborhood. They feel like they belong, feel like there's more and more positive influence. It's, it's a good change in the community. This is just a survey we do door to door. So overall, the neighbors are getting more and more satisfied with living there. And 
compared ED visits, uh, in the red is the northeast, south side is in the blue, and inpatient days, uh, relatively speaking, have gotten better in our neighborhood compared to the other neighborhoods, although we have a propensity score paper that I hope will be coming out soon, which compares to three other neighborhoods soon. So I actually want to tie this up, not letting you ask questions, but I want to ask questions. Um, so I, I have a few questions. And, and what can hospitals bring to the table? Sometimes it's money. Other times it's not money, but it's, it's you know, politics. It's knowledge of what's good for kids. It's a measurement system that allows us to tell whether we're having an effect. Sometimes it's political capital. Sometimes it's relationships with uh, politicians or bankers or anybody else. So hospitals have many, many different hats to wear in this. It's sometimes it's as an employer. Will we be an interloper when we go into these conversations? Of course we will, but actually we found that people have welcomed us with open arms if we go in with humility and if we go in with the uh, goal of helping children and families, because that's what they're trying to do. Um, secondly, I really want to ask you if it's ethical to stay in our clinics. Um, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my career seeing a lot of patients. And all those patients, I felt like I was connecting with them and I was hopefully making a difference. But, a, you know, a visit every other month or a visit twice a year or a visit, what do those mean? And were those families going home to something where they were seven days a week, 24 hours a day, living in a community that was very, very challenging? And so, and I knew that wasn't right, but I didn't know what to do about it. I think we have more information about what to do about it. So is it really ethical to stay in our clinics and not act? And then maybe most importantly, how healthy are your children? Like if you know how healthy your children are, then, and you're saying, hey, our children are doing great here in Hartford and our children are fine, then stay in your clinics by all means. But if they're not, how do we measure that? How do we know what we're doing? And so we've taken the next step and started to uh, try to measure what the outcomes of the kids are. And we participate very actively in the Infant Mortality Collaborative. We actually underwrite all the staffing for it at the hospital. But we know that if we don't do this housing, if we don't do our employment work, there's some other employment work we could talk about. And with the school work that we're doing, then we're really not going to have a long-term effect because our clinical services are never going to get us to where we want to be. So um, those are my questions for you. Uh, I hope you have uh, uh, good argumentative answers for me. And uh, thank you.